This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Clear the news absolutely dominated by what's happening in Ukraine right now. You can also keep across what's actually happening in the news by uh, tuning into Times Radio. We'll bring you all of the latest. What we're doing on the podcast today is looking at Emmanuel Macron. He's very much the man of the moment. He was the one who tried to broker peace. He went and sat opposite Vladimir Putin on that very long table. He even claims to have agreed a summit between Russia and America. And then it all went horribly wrong. Vladimir Putin giving that extraordinary speech littered with uh, lies about the history of Ukraine. And now it seems that the invasion is underway. So what we thought we'd do is take a look at Emmanuel Macron's role in all of this as he's poised to launch his re-election campaign in the French presidential elections. That's our big thing on the podcast today. First, though, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Tuesday, it must be... Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. David, your assessment of where we are this morning with Ukraine. <laughs> yes. OK. Um, let me stand in lieu of a gigantic array of experts from Brookings and this international institution and that international uh, 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 firm of um, risk assessors uh, and so on. Um, uh, the thing that we're waiting to discover, uh, I think, just at this moment, is whether the Russians intend to try and take that part of the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts, those are regions in the east, that, and it's the majority of them, are not controlled by the rebels who they've decided to recognise or help the rebels to do so, in which case that becomes outright war with Ukraine uh, and then anything can happen. Um, and that's the thing that we don't know yet. It seems quite likely um, or quite possible that that would happen. 
Danny? Well, in 2014, when uh, the, there was the uh, last revolution in Ukraine, some of the demonstrations took place outside my father's house, the one in which he was brought up. Uh, and the reason for that is that um, the, the president of Ukraine used to use it as a summer house. Uh, this is an area of the world, therefore, that my family comes from. Yeah. Uh, and I last went there, you know, I went there in October uh, and uh, to visit. At, and I'm glad I did it then, because now you wouldn't be able to go. I just noticed that the Americans have moved their diplomats out of uh, Lviv um, and uh, that is the place where I made a lot of new friends in October uh, who were very kind to show me around all the places where uh, my family had lived so I feel it very personally this I think it is um, linked very strongly to the past of my family and to uh, the future of Europe and I'm um, both nervous about uh, whether anything that we can do can stop uh, Vladimir Putin's attempts to uh, suborn Ukraine and um, worried if we do find the will to resist it what that will mean of course when we have in terms of bloodshed and when you were there because I mean clearly this is something that uh, has bubbled up the sort of news agenda of the UK in the last few weeks was this a topic of live conversation when you were there in October? Not so hugely, actually. Um, certainly it wasn't acute, but it was in the atmosphere. So th th there has, you know, look, the, the, the truth is Ukraine is a complicated country. The, the place that my father was brought up in was Poland, actually, and lots of the Poles were then moved out. Um, when uh, and Ukrainians moved into that area. Uh, and it's also true that quite a lot of that country, um, you know, Russia certainly had a claim on it, on it, and certainly before the in uh, before the invasion of Russia in the nineteen in nineteen thirty nine, uh, there had been the purges that they carried out in Ukraine uh, with Khrushchev as the head of the Ukrainian Communist Party, creating Soviet Ukraine around Stalin's leadership. So this is you know it's a, it's not a simple history this of um, you know uh, an, an integral democracy that had lasted for centuries being uh, invaded. It's more complicated than that. But I do think it's it is a battle about whether or not we, we think the post-Cold War settlement, uh, the, the move we took towards democracy on that occasion, whether we're going to intensify that or whether we're going to move back from it. Um, the, the Ukraine's had a spotted history since that time, and that was also obvious in the discussions that I had with people. And in terms of coming to, pass with, coming to terms with its Nazi past, it's still uh, making slow development, and even more so with, its, with the kind of experience my father had of being deported by the Soviets, which is not a story much told or circulated even in Lviv where it happened. So um, it's a complicated story, but in my view, at the heart of this complicated story is a simple choice we have, which is whether we're going to allow uh, a sort of democratic recession to take place, in, of which this is part, uh, or whether we're going to say, no, that it is not acceptable to unilaterally um, uh, strike against this post-Cold War settlement. And so what... <laughs> I suppose the thing is, even if we decide we're not going to allow that, what does Britain do to try and stop it? Well, I think that really at the moment there seems to be two things that we can do. The first does appear to be a, a sanctions regime that... Uh, I don't think has worked as a deterrent, but it might work, um, as it were, as a punishment. Um, so, therefore, I'm for the front-loaded um, uh, sanctions regime that we're now talking about, because some people are saying we've got to hold some back as a further deterrent. I'm not in favour of that. And the second thing is I'm afraid helping the uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian military uh, resistance. I suppose the third thing is um, reviewing 
whether or not we are robust against all of the international ways in which Russia, through uh, money and political propaganda and misinformation, tries to distort democracy in all sorts of countries. And therefore, as William Hague argues in, in The Times this morning, uh, it should change our entire mindset about how long that battle is going to go on. David, what, what what do you think we should be doing in response? Because it seems like we've had the last few weeks this slightly absurd parade of, of world leaders and foreign ministers going to Russia, being humiliated by, by Putin, yeah. uh, and then coming home again. And we've ended up where we were probably going to end up anyway. Um, that's true, but um, uh, it's really important that people show that they were actually trying their absolute hardest to avoid the situation that Putin has now put us in. Um, it really was. It was important for all kinds of reasons. Firstly, because there was a chance that it might have worked. There was an outside chance. And second, it's important that the rest of the world sees that the attempt was made. Uh, one of the things that I think that, that um, people confuse um, is the beginning of something and the end of something and so on. So a lot of people will think that somehow or other um, Putin has ended something by going into Ukraine and making a decision on it. On the contrary, it's actually begun something. And one of the things that has begun is a very widespread recognition, much wider spread than it was before, uh, amongst people in the West about just what the nature of the Russian regime is and how difficult it is and probably intolerable to do business with it. I mean, let's just take the example of energy supplies to Europe and Germany and so on from Russia. It must be obvious to just about everybody except the alternative of Deutschland and maybe a few Stalinists in Germany that being dependent upon Russian uh, energy is an intolerable situation to be in and they've got to get out of it and they've got to get out from under it as soon as possible. That Russia is not a partner for any kind of significant uh, strategic um, uh, resource uh, of any kind, um, and that actually it has to be treated, what Putin has done has plunged us fully into a new Cold War. That's the reality, and that was his decision and not our decision. And whilst you kind of keep um, uh, the possibility of dialogue open with Russians and with successor Russian governments, for the time being, the nature of what this regime is and the loss of the illusion which so many people have over such a period of time about what can be done with it, um, I think is, is a really significant factor. And it makes the capacity of the West and other countries to respond to Putin, I think, significantly easier than it might otherwise have been. Now, we can say, I mean, uh, one of the things I wanted to kind of refer to is this kind of feeling amongst the West, because Putin essentially, it more or less runs a dictatorship now um, of, of a particular kind, and because therefore his lines of decision are much easier and much less contested, and because his decision-making is therefore clearer, that somehow or other he's cleverer than us, he's better than us, he's got us over a barrel and so on. We've heard all these things from dictators and about dictators before, um, and I'm not going to accuse them of being defeatist, I'm going to accuse them of being wrong, uh, actually, and overestimating the enemy simply because the enemy is not a democracy and does not have to go through the things that democracy do. Democracies, when they mobilise, are truly fearsome things. And I think that Putin is leading to the mobilisation of the democracies. Oh, that's interesting. You, th you think, uh, because I suppose it could, be, it could be easy in this situation to be sort of quite defeatist about it, but actually you think that it might have the opposite effect? 
yes, I think it will have the opposite effect. I mean, I don't like analogies with the Second World War, but the fact is people celebrated the signing of the Munich Agreement in 1938 because they had the illusion that the, that the Germans might at some kind of point or other be susceptible to, uh, uh, to a peace. When uh, Hitler then went into the rest of Czechoslovakia, not just the Sudetenland, the scales pretty much dropped from their eyes. So that by the time you got to the invasion of Poland, a country which hadn't been ready to take up arms uh, uh, in, uh, in early 1938 was definitely by the summer of 1939. Um, what people do changes other people's attitudes and so on. So if Putin was uh, banking on people behaving in the same way as they did the last time round, I think he's made an incredible error. Well, I just want to um, play a bit of uh, what he actually had to say last night. And um, I, well, let, let's take a listen and we'll talk about it afterwards. This is uh, a little bit of uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, extraordinarily long rambling speech last night. It's uh, like uh, having a knife to your throat and they want to implement those plans just like they did in the last years by expanding NATO to the east, expanding the military uh, um, equipment and infrastructure, uh, ignoring our protest uh, warnings, uh, our interest. They just spat and uh, attacked, did whatever they liked. And of course, they uh, want to behave the same way. It's like when the dog um, barks, the caravan still goes on. Um, the thing that struck me, Danny, because I just went on and on and on. But when this is proper uh, um, lies, propaganda in order to invade another country, um, and may, but maybe we've because the sort of the lang the angry language that surrounds politics all the time, and people try to make out, you know, is Boris Johnson Donald Trump? You know, are we living in a dictatorship where we can say that this this is this is this is what happens when you have someone who's genuinely willing to uh, to lie uh, for the the worst possible means? Yeah, look, the most important thing in politics is always to retain your sense of proportion. I, I do believe that because we're in a fight over the future of democracies all over the world, our own conduct at home matters a lot. Yeah. And I don't think one should put that to one side. It's all part of uh, the same sort of argument. But at the same time, in any argument, it's not just you can't just make parallels. You've also got to have a sense of proportion. So obviously, we've got to see the, the difference between this and some of the things that we complain about at home. It doesn't mean we're wrong to complain about them, but it does mean you have to retain a, a sense of proportion. William Hague has got this completely correct. We, this is, um, you know, he said this morning in the paper, it's a wake-up call for the West, and it absolutely is. Um, and it's extremely difficult when uh, somebody decides, like he, he, Putin has, that he's going to ignore all the warnings and go outside uh, the um, the conventions and the laws and um, the agreements that, that, that his country has made. It's very difficult to prevent that. And the problem is that one of the few ways that you can do, you can prevent that in the end turns out to be through bloodshed and nobody wants that. So uh, it's, it is extremely difficult to know uh, what to do. I think it's, we will have to accept that we aren't, and David made this point really, that in the end that, that's a decision that will be forced upon us uh, rather than one that we will make ourselves. And, you know, nothing was more ridiculous than, than listening to Jeremy Corbyn arguing uh, that we ought to de-escalate the problem. How are we supposed to do that? We didn't escalate it. Uh, and um, th there is, there is a, in my view, 
a sort of odd alliance going on. There's there's sort of Nigel Farage and the kind of Nigel Farage Aaron Banks view, which is Ukraine belongs to you know with with all of Aaron Banks' his great historical knowledge, uh, Ukraine <laughs> belongs to uh, Russia, um, and um, it, this is none of our business, and it's a waste of our resources and. Uh, time and money and then on the other hand you've got Jeremy Corbyn uh, saying we ought to uh, show restraint interestingly enough the experience of my family has led me um, as people say that should always lead you to believe in completely unconstrained immigration and or, you know every refugee must be able to come here it all it produces actually a different reaction which is we need to do things that stop world refugees so uh, one of the ways of doing that is to ensure that people can ensure can have prosperous, uh, democratic, peaceful lives where they want to live, which is in their home. My father didn't want to be a refugee. Uh, the home that he lived in still stands there, but he just couldn't live in it. Uh, David, um, given the, uh, uh, Danny's, Danny's ways, the, 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 the spectrum of, uh, of Jeremy Corbyn, the, the left's, the hard left's uh, attitude to Russia... But I mean, actually, I mean, when he was leader of the opposition, it, it was a it was a live issue. It wasn't a sort of fringe element of just people with cloth bags on a Saturday afternoon protesting outside the wrong embassy. Um, but the the left's attitude towards Russia is is key to this as well, isn't it? Um, there's always been a, a mashup between people who are genuinely incredibly fearful of war and will want to try and avoid it at any means, and people who are effectively on the other side and want to use their desire for a lack of war in order to uh, help uh, uh, to, he- to help, in, if you like, the enemy. That's 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 always been that's that's always been the case, and sometimes it becomes quite difficult to distinguish uh, the two, which is tricky because some people. Act have the absolute best of motives, and some people act from fairly close to the worst uh, to, to the worst of motives. And then you've also always had, as as with the Aaron Banks thing, a kind of highly nationalist isolationist element, which was something that was true of the kind of America First movement between 1940 and 41, 42. Um, and Donald Trump's uh, attitude towards uh, world affairs, you know, kind of America first, uh, and we're not going to get involved, and it's nothing to do with us, um, and we'll walk away from it. Um, there are big, there are big strands on both the le- far left and the far right who, who, who take who, who take this view. The rest of us are left struggling um, in democracies to try and work out how to respond to the activities of dictatorships, and usually, and this is the point that Danny and I are both making, the dictator. Dictatorships make you make your mind up for you. Um, uh, and somebody who said we should have been tougher before usually turns out to have been uh, right or at least to have predicted the future more yeah. exactly. Um, I, you know, looking at the fact that um, the Champions League final is due to be held in St. Petersburg, uh, for example, um, you'd be looking now for that to be withdrawn. It's yeah. just not going to happen. And that's a real-world um, thing that we could do something about. And uh, there's a real, yeah, yeah, I mean, Danny faces a real-world problem at his football club, actually, but that's a more kind of, more kind of parochial <laughs> uh, type, of, type of problem. I don't know how, quite how to, resolve, how, how to resolve that one as we, as, as we do away with the business of dependency upon Russian oligarchs' money um, uh, in this country, which is usually in some way linked to Putin. But all these are going to be kind of in a row relatively minor key. These are kind of demonstrations and so on. In the end, we've got to decide whether or not we act to help defend uh, uh, the government in Kiev 
from being completely taken over and if it is taken over how we then react to the inevitable resistance that the uh, that sections of the ukrainian people will show to to that happening if that's what happens let's let's come slightly closer to home and talk about something silly for a couple of minutes. Uh, the English have a cultural cringe that stops them making songs about some of the country's less glamorous cities. It's according to Stephen Knight, who's the creator of Peaky Blinders. He says that uh, um, people don't write songs about Huddersfield or Bolton or Birmingham, whereas in America you do get songs about virtually every big city. What do you think, David? Why don't we have well, more songs there, about Huddersfield? There are some, I remember an old folk song that goes from hell and Huddersfield and, uh, and Hull, good Lord, deliver me. That was a song about them. I mean, maybe not quite a bin what he, uh, what he had in <laughs> mind. Um, uh, just because we don't know. I mean, if we think about songs probably about Liverpool, uh, for example, plenty of songs about Liverpool. I dare say there are one or two about Manchester. Um, all I can say is if you want a song about your hometown, you think it's not got a then write one. That's true. Let's go. <laughs> go there and get the, the Kings did Waterloo Sunset. That song would have been perfectly good as having been Huddersfield Sunset if some Huddersfield Kings had written it. <laughs> ELO did Birmingham Blues, so that's not quite true what this uh, individual is saying. I, I, I'll have to sit there. I'm sure I could think of it. It is true that if, if, if Elton John had written the words and Bernie Torpin had written the music, maybe we would have had lots of songs about Pinner. Um, <laughs> which uh, is where you're from. Which is where I'm from and where Elton he's from. Elton John's the second most famous man from Pinner. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, know, cause I, I, I mean, the, 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 when, I, when I read this story, my immediate thought went to the Wurzels, who have done lots of songs about sort of f- slightly obscure corners of Somerset. Over the years, do you think he had in mind the Wurzels? I think the Chewton Mendip Lovin. I think was probably what he was thinking. <laughs> Why is that the Charlton Mackerel Jug Band? I didn't know you had your LP collection in the office. Uh, yeah, I've got. Um, I've, I'm looking this up on. Uh, uh, You've it? got Wurzels LPs, haven't you? Uh, I have got. I've got a signed Wurzels album at home. <laughs> in fact, I think. Uh, I, I, I'm talking. So the traditionalist in me likes the you know where be the blackbird and all that. But also their covers of popular, uh, more modern songs are also very powerful. Well, what shame we left this till the end of the program. Uh, <laughs> no, no, he whole... hasn't left it. He can still, he can still do a rendition, Danny, and I think he should. <laughs> uh, drink up the cider and all of that. Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovich there, and of course you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Macron's Moment. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. It looked for a short while on Monday that President Macron of France might have pulled off a remarkable diplomatic triumph, calming tensions over Ukraine and securing a summit with Presidents Biden and Putin. But only 24 hours later, we see Russian troops and tanks entering the two so-called breakaway regions of Ukraine. I suppose you can't fault President Macron for trying. Remember his big table chat with Putin? But it doesn't seem to have worked. Some even say it's been a humiliation for President Macron. As he prepares to launch his re-election campaign in the French presidential elections, we thought we'd focus on the French president and examine his role in Ukraine, in Europe and with post-Brexit Britain. Later, we'll hear from some of those who've met him and worked with him and know him best. Let's start with Charles Bremner, the Paris correspondent for The Times, who joins me now. Hi, Charles. Hi, Charles. Good morning, Matt. 
Um, just explain the role that uh, Emmanuel Macron has played in this uh, diplomatic crisis with Russia and what success, if any, he might be able to claim. There's not a great deal of success at the moment that Emmanuel Macron can claim. He played. He tried to play an intermediate role. He followed the, um, the model of General Charles de Gaulle, who put France somehow in the middle, somewhere in the middle between Washington and uh, and, and Moscow. He is very a very energetic man, President Macron. He thought that uh, by he could use his good offices to bring Putin round to see some sense, at least to give some ground. He, at the moment, looks as if he was taken a little bit uh, for a ride by President Putin, and that is, of course, what the French opposition is saying today. And um, how is this playing out in France against the backdrop? As I mentioned, the French presidential election is coming up in April. He's due to formally launch his uh, run for the presidency any time now. Is it is it seen as a positive that he at least tried, or is it as some are characterising a sort of a humiliation on the world stage? It's been seen up until now as fairly positively. The French, like any country, like to see their leaders as statesmen on the world stage. In the last uh, 24 hours, though, uh, the, the, the opposition has rounded on him quite strongly. All the, his opponents in the presidential campaign have said he's been made to look like a fool or wasted his time, and all of them have accused him of doing this, of playing diplom- diplomat to delay his own entry into the presidential campaign and to enhance his own image. Uh, and I suppose that the question is to what extent that 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 has played a calculation, played a part in the calculation of going so hard in on uh, Putin. Yes, uh, President Macron's been doing this with Putin as he did with Donald Trump or throughout his presidency for the last five years. It's not new. Macron believes that he has a mission and that France has a mission to act as mediator on the world stage. He has not succeeded with President Putin, but that has not prevented him from trying several times. He's invited Putin twice to France and uh, uh, smothered him with with generous uh, gestures, but uh, none of it seems to have worked. And um, just on the, the, the broader question of the presidential race, we obviously speak to you normally every Wednesday uh, to get our, our regular updates. Where are we on his opponents? He's, he is seen as, by far and away, the front run in the race. What about the other candidates? Well, at the moment, uh, the, the, the campaign is in a bit of stasis. They're, the opponents are all floundering around. And in fact, uh, some of them are sort of seem to be destroying each other at the moment. They're all waiting for Macron to get into the race, and Macron is floating above with much stronger polling. This can all change, of course, but at the moment it doesn't look as if it will. Uh, well, and in his role within Europe, um, uh, has he sort of managed to cement what clearly seems to be his aim of being the sort of the king of Europe? Uh, Angela Merkel's gone, Britain's left. Is it now the European Union a, a French project? Not entirely, no. President Macron would like Europe very much to follow the, to follow the, the, the example that he wants to lead, he, the, the model that he wants for Europe, which is sort of a large, autonomous, protective organisation which acts as, a, as, a, as the third force in the world with China and the United States and protects its own citizens against the outside world. That is not exactly how it's seen in Germany and certainly not in Eastern Europe. Um, President Macron has also has nevertheless benefited from the absence of the UK. That's one troublemaker less in the EU. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and put, uh, certainly a, a sort of um, 
uh, a Eurosceptic um, uh, voice no longer at the table. Uh, we're just hearing in the last uh, few moments, Charles, that Germany's ordered the withdrawal of a key document needed for certification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia. I mean, obviously, Germany's faced a lot of criticism for still trying to sort of pursue uh, Nord Stream 2. Is that um, the subject of uh, political debate in France too? Yes, sir. the French would would have preferred Germany to be more negative on Nord Stream 2. They, they've, Macron has not taken an open position on it, unlike the United States, because um, the, the relationship with Berlin is very important. They don't criticise Berlin in public, but they are worried, like the, most of the Eastern European countries are, over a German dependence on, on Russian gas. And that seems to have been a, 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 a real area of, of tension between Paris and Berlin this particular issue of the, of, of, the, of uh, well, in this case, certifying the, the gas pipeline? Yes, it's, it's, it hasn't been an open public issue. The, the, the diplomacy is going on in private, the, the contacts with Berlin about this. The, the French in general believe that Berlin is not tough enough about, about Russia. But on the other hand, the French are also play, playing a middle role. They, they, the French public opinion sees, uh, sees the British and the Americans as being far too tough on Moscow. In fact, the French media, the French state media are talking about American alarmism still. Oh, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how that pans out. That news just in the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz saying Germany's taken steps to halt the process of certifying the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia. Charles Bremner, really good to speak to you. Charles Bremner is uh, the Paris correspondent for The Times. Let's just pause for a moment and take a look at the relations between Britain and France during his time in office. <laughs> I know that this House and this country stands united with the French people. We want to maintain a close relationship, and I confirmed to President Macron. We stand shoulder to shoulder with France in so many uh, important ways. Yes, Allons enfants de la patrie, le jour de gloire est arrivé. Contre nous de la tyrannie, l'étendard sanglant élevé, is how it goes. Then you go, the, the key thing is marchand, marchand. So that was David Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson talking about the relationship between the UK and France. I mean, particularly in recent years, it's been under some pressure, not least over Britain's withdrawal from the EU, arguments about fishing and uh, the number of people coming across the channel and who is responsible to try and uh, stop that happening. Well, earlier I caught up with David Liddington. He was Europe Minister under David Cameron and then later Theresa May's de facto deputy. He's met President Macron on several occasions. And he told me what the French president is really like. I've met him close up a couple of times when, when I was uh, deputising for Theresa May when she couldn't go to some summit in Paris. And obviously I've come across him... Um, many other times, slightly at one remove, in you know, working at the Foreign Office when he was a senior official in the Hollande Elysee, and and then obviously after he became president. But it, the, the one really striking event that, that I recall was um, the last thing that I did abroad as a minister, and um, it was one of those odd things. Theresa May had been due to attend the 14 Juillet big parade in. Um, uh, the centre of Paris and be on the platform with, with Macron and Merkel and others. And then e England, if you recall, suddenly got into the Cricket World Cup final 
And Theresa is a great cricket fan and felt also, you know, it was her public duty to be supporting uh, the England eleven on that occasion. And so I got the summons, who, can you go to, to Paris on Sunday and sit on the platform next to Jean-Claude Juncker? And, and, um, uh, and, then, and then lunch at the Elysee on the terrace and afterwards, little table, Macron, Merkel, Juncker, Charles Michel, um, Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary-General, Mark Rutter, Fuaz, and me representing the UK, and and what I remember about that event was the 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 liveliness of Macron's mind. I mean, this was a man who was coming up with ideas. We were talking about European security, future of our security and defence on the continent, and he was trying to work out how how do we make sure the UK is involved if if the one as you you're leaving the EU. Um, and should we have a separate European Security Council that the UK and the EU together? Should we have some other structures there? And and he's somebody who has a very restless uh, mind, incredibly bright, intelligent, intellectually curious the whole time. And I think when you agree with him or disagree with him, it, it's fascinating to be in his company. And 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 he's somebody who seems to be who never stops. Thinking. I mean, he's come up with other ideas, you know, a European intervention initiative, where, which we, we actually are still signed up to outside the EU. Um, he's talked about a Europe of circles in the future. Um, the idea that you'd have a Eurozone core very closely integrated and then circles with different layers of, sort of cooperation as you move further out. And he's the one European leader, it seems to me, has been asking the question where after Brexit, does the UK fit into a relationship of cooperation between the European democracies, which is the, the, the current crisis with Russia and Ukraine, um, I think really has brought home to us. It's something we all need to be thinking about. How, how did he take the fact that he organised this grand <laughs> gathering? Um, all other national leaders were there and you were you were the only number two. He, 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 was very, he was very good about it. I mean, you know, if he if he was at all put out, he didn't show it. And uh, he was a very, very gracious host. Um, and, you know, I, I, I because I've been Europe minister for six years, I mean, you know, my sort of track record was pretty well known around European capitals amongst European leaders. Um, but, you know, he he accepted it was like um, uh, you know, if he as president of France had had to choose between an international summit and supporting Les Bleus, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, on the on the football field or the rugby, the rugby field. Um, I think most French presidents would have made sure that they were there being seen to cheer on their team. So he, he got that. And, and he said to me on the way out, we were, we were breaking up. So no, he said, do, you know, is, is, "Do you have the score yet?" <laughs> so you know, he's a, you know, he's he he's, he, he, he's, he, he he was he wasn't phased at all, as far as I could see. And, and just finally, relations with with British politicians. Uh, I know he was quite close to George Osborne. I remember being when when Manny Macron came to the UK, went to Sandhurst with Theresa May. Mm. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, tried to persuade him of the merits of building a bridge between uh, Britain and France. And it was ridiculous we didn't have a bridge between France and, and England. And, and uh, Macron apparently told him, I agree, let's do it. I mean, so far that doesn't seem to have happened. And if, if anything, the pair of them seem to have spent the past few years burning bridges rather <laughs> yeah. than building. Yeah, I think, I think relations started off with, you know, efforts being made to have a good relationship. And then I think um, as sort of the UK's uh, approach to Brexit 
became more hardline and, and the UK was taking unilateral action, despite what Boris Johnson had signed up to, um, Macron you know, took that really badly. Um, and uh, But I think just in the last few weeks, there's some signs that because of the Ukraine crisis, that they have been speaking to each other in more friendly terms. I mean, France has always accepted that you can't talk about a serious European uh, system to cooperate on defence and security policy unless both France and the UK are involved. We're, we're the two countries that have um, serious intelligence, military forces, serious soft power and the global outlook and global networks and the willingness, political will, unlike Germany, uh, for the obvious reasons, the will to deploy our military overseas. Um, and so France and Germany have to work together, but, but France has always with Brexit in mind, wanted to be the portal through which the UK has to get access to the rest of the EU. And France always rather likes to keep the whole sort of economic cooperation off to one side. We're going to have European EU strategic autonomy on this. Thank you. UK, yeah, we want to work with you on defence and security. But I think no doubt in my mind that um, the Ukraine crisis has uh, forced Johnson and Macron closer together. There is a commonality of interest, although there are differences. I mean, the, Johnson, you know, following the line of previous prime ministers, you know, cleaves closely to Biden and the United States position, more hawkish on Russia. Macron has inherited a gaullist approach, um, is more sceptical about the United States, wants to have Europe, a Europe led by France, playing a central and autonomous role in global geopolitics. Um, so you know, some of the conversation between UK and France is going to need to be about you know, where is the common ground between those two different views? And also what happens in the US will affect that. You know, if we, if we get a Trump further term in, in 2024 and you, know, you get a Republican president who is as hostile to NATO as Trump threatened to be in his first term, didn't quite carry it through, then we're all going to have to think very seriously about our, our security again. But so I think Macron's a man we can certainly work with together and well, I've heard from him directly, um, tells me he knows that the UK and cooperation with the UK is central to an effective European defence and European security policy. Maybe if we do get another Trump presidency and another uh, Macron presidency, they can they can repeat their um, who's got the toughest <laughs> handshake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll perhaps be the full arm wrestle next time. That's David Liddington, uh, former York minister, former uh, number two to Theresa May when she was uh, prime minister. Uh, giving us his assessment of uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. Dominique, first of all, your assessment of the role that Emmanuel Macron has played in recent days, clearly, you know, the, from the extraordinary uh, image of him sitting across that four-metre table with uh, President Putin to trying to broker some sort of summit between um, Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden, uh, to now, it seems, some are saying humiliation as an invasion is underway. What, what's your assessment of uh, Emmanuel Macron's role in this? Uh, my, my assessment is that President Macron uh, tried really to work with a diplomatic way. Uh, we know that we will not fight for Ukraine. There will be no European or uh, US soldier in Ukraine soil to defend. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Ukraine. So the last thing we, can, we, we could do was, uh, was to uh, try diplomatic way. It was a failure because uh, President Putin was playing what we say in, in Russia, Mashkarovka. He was uh, playing diplomatics and preparing the war. But, uh, but President Macron had to try that. And, uh, you know, uh, what, what else you can do? I mean, you, you will not uh, put all weapon system in front of the Russians. So that was the only way he had to, to play. And he tried it. I suppose that's the thing. Better to try and fail than not than, than not try at all. What's your um, having been a defence advisor to Emmanuel Macron? What what is his sort of gut instinct on these uh, things? He has a sort of uh, reputation of being, you know, he likes to be someone who's sort of striding around on the world stage. Um, but what's he like up close as a, as a man to work for? No, I, I mean, President Macron since the start of the presidency. Do, always wanted to discuss with uh, President Putin. He thinks that we have to, had, to have a dialogue. In Europe, he was not helped by many European countries who didn't want to talk to, to, uh, uh, to President Putin. I think it was, a, it was a mistake. You have to talk to <clears throat> President Putin. But after the, the speech pre- made by President Putin yesterday, I think that uh, uh, President Putin is really an, in another world. I mean, he's... Uh, uh, playing the usual, I, I mean, in Yugoslavia between 90 and 95, I heard so many of these speeches the, uh, provided by the uh, the Serbian people. Uh, so I think it's another world. And uh, we understand now that discussion with uh, a president who is completely locked in his, uh, in his, his, in his history is very difficult. Um, Philippe, let's bring you in there. How, how is um, President Macron positioned domestically right now? He's expected to uh, launch his uh, re-election campaign at any time. I mean, presumably he was hoping for a sort of successful outcome from uh, uh, trying to secure peace in Ukraine, and then that would have been a good springboard. But what's the sort of domestic? What's his domestic position? <clears throat> I think yes. Officially, the, uh, the 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 official line coming from the Elise Palace was that he would he would postpone by a week his announcement uh, because he was dealing with the uh, Ukrainian uh, Russian crisis, and of course, as you say, he was probably hoping for a success, which he didn't get. But at least he tried. I think overall that will not impact much on the campaign. Uh, where. What, what, whatever happened in in Russia or Ukraine at the moment, uh, there will be even very little talk about about the EU and probably Brexit is one of the reasons. I think there won't be any talks, for instance, about Frexit, which is a French exit, something which was which was quite popular five six years ago on the far left and far right. Um, I think he's starting the campaign in a in a driving seat very strongly. Is ahead, well ahead in the polls. Uh, but of course, the mood, the political mood, uh, is volatile. So I think uh, 
the opinion polls have to be taken with a pinch of salt. Things could change and, and could change rapidly. And I, I think the important thing to say about this campaign is although Macron is well ahead in the polls, things could change. And it's no longer a two-horse race, which was predicted, you know, Macron facing Le Pen again, a kind of rerun of 2017. Uh, you, you now have a second far-left candidate, which is a serious contender, at least serious in a sense, who could make it to the second round, Éric Zemmour. And then you have a, a comeback from the main conservative candidate, Valérie Pécresse, for Les Républicains. And finally, I would add even a, a fifth horse, so to speak, mm -hmm. to this, uh, to a five-horse race, which is the left populist candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who did very well five years ago, and who could do well again because of tactical voting on the left. The left is historically weak, so there could be a sort of a transfer of votes, massive transfer of votes from uh, more moderate left-wing voters to Mélenchon, who's not uh, in the centre-left, who could benefit from that. So it's a very open race in a sense, but I, I would agree with you. Ma Macron is clearly uh, the, fav the favorite uh, and it's for, for him, it's for him to lose. You know, uh, I think he, sh he is the favorite to win that election. You said that um, it's, it, it, it could potentially be unpredictable. Um, you know, he came virtually from nowhere last time round. Politics, as we've seen in the UK, has been quite volatile too. Um, I, I wonder whether this is an opportunity for some of his opponents you know, at a time when uh, certain voters start looking for a sort of strongman uh, brand of, of politics, someone who will stand up to other strong men like uh, Vladimir Putin. Is he, is this now a weakness for him? Are there other candidates who might try and position themselves as the, as the sort of the, the, the strongman candidate in this, in this contest? I think there's a bit of that going on. And if, again, we get back to the uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis, I think the ironic thing, I think your Charles Bremner, your uh, Paris correspondent, said earlier that uh, Macron had adopted a kind of uh, gaullist uh, stand on this issue you know, as a kind of a, uh, intermediate uh, uh, person in between uh, Russia and, and the US. And in fact, the his critiques in France are saying that he's, he's a kind of American poodle. He's too much aligned on on the U.S., too much aligned on NATO. And in fact, if you if you if you, for instance, listen to what Mélenchon, the populist left, and 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 Le Pen on the far right are saying, they I mean the buzzword for them now is non-alignment. They'd like France to be non-aligned, whatever that means. It's a bit fuzzy <laughs> and not very well defined. But in fact. Uh, it's, it's interesting because his critics in France, his opponents, are saying that he's too aligned on the US and NATO. So it's, it's always very hard, you know, to uh, clearly uh, uh, sort of uh, have a winning position when it comes to international affairs. Macron has been trying, I believe, to, while clearly sticking to one camp, uh, as a sort of a NATO camp, so to speak, uh, has been trying really to, to 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 go somewhere and to try to find to find solutions together with Germany. He had yeah. some kind of an official mandate, but of course it didn't work out. Uh, just on the subject of Germany, I just want to ask you uh, finally, Dominique, um, the, the, your reaction to this news uh, of Germany pulling the plug on the Nord Stream two gas pipeline it, behind the scenes, France was was less enthusiastic about this. What does this tell us about? Uh, actually, Macron's influence perhaps on on Germany. Um, you know, the departure of Angela Merkel's meant that, that he felt like he's got something of the, the upper hand. Your your reaction to that news on the Nord Stream two gas pipeline? 
no, I think that uh, France hasn't the same problem with gas that uh, uh, that the um, that the Germany has. Uh, but clearly, on the problem of influence between Germany and France, I mean, it's both way. I don't think that both have a, an influence on the other. They just have their own interest and try to <laughs> to to find the common interest, and that's it. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. Listener.